morning, a historic development in the fight against Alzheimer's. Aducanumab. 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 Brand name, Aduhelm. The FDA approving a new treatment for the condition. Controversial new treatment. The last treatment for Alzheimer's came on the market some 18 years ago. Big day for Biogen, big day for the drug industry, big day for the Alzheimer's community, guys. Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garden. It's Thursday, June 10th, and this week we've got a special episode focusing on just one thing, the FDA's controversial approval of Biogen's Alzheimer's drug. First, we break down what happened and why it's such a big deal. Next, we'll talk about the broader implications for science, medicine, and the drug industry as a whole. Finally, we look at how we got here and the precedent set by activism in HIV in a conversation with Yale professor and global health activist Greg Gonzalez. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley from STAT, and I'm here with Charles Fuchs, Head of Oncology Product Development at Genentech. Charlie, I know the role of inclusivity is widely discussed within biotech, but why is it so critical, especially for cancer treatment? Well, Angus, at Genentech, we believe that inclusivity is essential. We ask ourselves every step of the way, how can our clinical trials reflect real-world disease demographics and... How can we gather data that are more representative of the patient populations we treat to create a future where every person with cancer receives medicines that are right for them? We're asking these questions to deliver on the promise of personalized care and to optimize treatment outcomes for all cancer patients. Join us in asking these bigger questions at gene.com forward slash ask bigger questions that's g-e-n-e dot com forward slash ask bigger questions so listeners of this podcast know that we've spent uh, probably hours of recorded time and and days uh, of actual time getting ready for the thing that happened monday which was the fda's decision on biogen's polarizing alzheimer's drug now called aduhelm and as you heard earlier in this episode and as you probably had heard prior to listening to it the fda decided to approve that drug i have to say monday was kind of exciting when the approval actually happened i mean there was there was adrenaline flowing and it was a surprising approach that the fda took it wasn't just an approval or a rejection it was an approval, but under a surprising pathway. Maybe Damien, break it down for us. Yeah, so the FDA has at its disposal this concept of accelerated approval, and it's quite often used for new treatments for cancer. And so what the FDA will do in the name of getting new treatments to patients as quickly as possible is approve a drug based on what they call a surrogate endpoint, which is basically evidence that the drug does a thing that is likely to predict a thing that we all want. So in cancer, that means you can get a drug approved if it shrinks tumors, even if we don't yet know whether it prolongs survival for patients with cancer. And that's because you know it's pretty well established that the fewer tumors you have or smaller or whatever, the healthier you will be. So the FDA took this approach to uh, Aduhelm, as it's now called. But in this case, it isn't as cut and dry as shrinking tumors. They approved it based on its ability to decrease levels of beta amyloid in the brain, the toxic plaques that are 
I was going to say believed, hotly debated the role that they play in the actual progression of Alzheimer's disease. And so this is where, as you can probably imagine, the controversy comes into play. Because by the FDA's logic, the fact that Aduhelm can reduce these amyloid plaques means that it's likely to um, slow the progression of Alzheimer's for patients who take it. But the rub is that Biogen ran two very large trials keeping tabs on the cognitive abilities of patients in the study. And, you know, as you probably know, one was narrowly positive and one failed. So to people looking at this from the outside, it seems like the FDA found a compromise that might not have the strongest logical basis. Yeah, I mean, I think that was probably the biggest surprise that came out of Monday. I mean, I think a lot of people expected the FDA to approve Aduhelm. You know, it just sort of the tea leaves were sort of there. Damien, I, I know you thought that it would, it would happen, and I was kind of leaning in that direction. Um, but again, this, this sort of curveball, this accelerated approval pathway is really interesting because, again, first of all, you know, that, that pathway has never been used for a neurodegenerative disease before, you know, never been used in Alzheimer's. And and the fact is, is that they kind of went about it, like you said, Damien, backwards in that we already have two large clinical trials with very mixed results on the clinical benefit endpoint that people care about most in Alzheimer's. And but FDA sort of threw that out and said, all right, just by the fact that this drug clears beta amyloid plaques from the brain, which really nobody disputes. I mean, the data are pretty clear that this drug does that. But what is completely unclear and unknown, um, and I think a lot of people doubt, is that whether that, that actually leads to cognitive improvement in patients. To me, that was the most interesting part of the entire thing, was that the FDA was essentially saying, yep, we believe in the amyloid hypothesis, that idea that by clearing amyloid, you will affect the um, the progression of the disease. And that is just incredibly controversial. And as you guys pointed out, during the advisory committee meeting, the FDA actually made the statement that they were not using amyloid as a surrogate for disease progression. And then they turned around and did exactly that. And so that led to a tremendous amount of backlash from the advisory committee, which had voted no on whether these data supported approval. Yeah, I think the other the other big surprise uh, on Monday was the price, right? Um, Biogen has set the price of Aduhelm at $56,000 a year. That's the sticker price. I mean, it will be discounted down once sort of insurer discounts and Medicare discounts get factored in. But that is, a, what is that, five times what kind of people expected the drug? People were kind of looking at like a ten dollars to $12,000 a year drug. $56,000 is huge. So I just have to say, I actually was not surprised by this price at all. I it was probably because I didn't do enough research beforehand. And I was surprised by the surprise at the price. Because think about what kind of drug this is. I mean, it's a, it's a biologic drug. They've been working on it for years. It, it seems to me more along the lines of these specialty drugs, which is exactly the way Biogen has been positioning it and in the messaging since they announced the price, talking about it in that way. You know, you have analysts comparing it to the existing Alzheimer's medicines, which cost something like $8,000 a year. But the existing Alzheimer's medicines don't, you know, act on the underlying cause of the disease. You debate about whether aducanumab does as well. But it's a totally different category of drug. And to me, I was just not surprised at all. I would have been shocked if they priced it at $10,000 a year. It's just not what Biogen does. Yeah, no, that's fair. And I, I was surprised, but I think that reflects my own personal ignorance. Because I think it gets to, Meg, as you said, 
there was a discrepancy in terms of how a lot of people on the analyst side were thinking about it and how Biogen was thinking about it. On the analyst side, people were looking at it as, or some people were looking at it as a primary care drug that, you know, you would, you would see your primary care physician and, you know, get diagnosed with Alzheimer's and then be put on this drug immediately. And thus there'd be a really wide net that Biogen would be casting. And that would assume you'd want a lower price, which you could make more money on because you'd get a higher number of patients. Biogen, I think, looked at all of the facts of the drug. Like you said, it's a biologic, but also it needs to be administered in an infusion center. Patients will very likely need to get PET scans and MRIs before they even get on the drug and then probably need PET scans throughout it. So it's, I think Biogen realized it was going to be a much smaller patient population that was going to get this drug than maybe a lot of people thought and probably kind of worked backwards to get to that $56,000 number because then you're looking not, not at a rare disease thing, but as you said, as a specialty medicine, which tend to be more expensive because companies expect you know, smaller number of people to get them. And thus, if you want to make profits, which Biogen is absolutely poised to do at this point, you have to charge a premium price. But this brings us to surprise number three, the label. Adam, oh, yeah. you were all over this. Explain the surprise in the label. Well, yeah, you know, oftentimes, right, when we when we get these drug approvals, everyone goes to the label, the FDA-approved label, to kind of just look at sort of what the details are, what's included, what's not included. When we looked at the label for Adahelm, the FDA label says that it's a treatment for Alzheimer's. It doesn't say it's a treatment for patients with early stage Alzheimer's or, you know, or cognitive, early cognitive impairment. It's just Alzheimer's patients, which essentially gives Biogen carte blanche to market and to treat any patient with Alzheimer's. Um, that was unexpected. People really thought that because Biogen only tested this drug in patients with the earliest stages of the disease, that that's what the label would say, that it would sort of be restricted to those patients. But the FDA placed no restrictions. And then during a briefing with the media on Monday, the FDA basically endorsed the use of this drug for any patient with Alzheimer's, as long as that Alzheimer's was caused by amyloid plaques, saying that, you know, there was evidence or suggestive evidence that, you know, any reduction in amyloid plaques in any patient may be beneficial. So, you know, that basically opened up the market for, for Biogen just a much larger. I mean, we, I think the numbers, Damien, correct me if I'm wrong. I think the numbers are something like 6 million, pa 6 million people living with Alzheimer's in the United, in the States, United right States right now. Mm -hmm. two, around 2 million or so of those patients have early stage disease. So you can see it's, it's a huge enlargement of this market opportunity. Yeah, that was that was shocking to me initially. And in trying to piece together what the FDA's reasoning was, because as you mentioned, you know, the drug is approved for people in whom it has not been studied. I think, and I don't know, this is not based on anything, FDA probably understood it was already like diving into shark infested waters by approving it whatsoever. And so by giving it such a wide label, it seemed like they're almost kind of putting their hands up saying like, you guys sort this out. And by you guys, I mean, Medicare, Medicaid, private insurers, Biogen itself. This is this is not our, our purview. And so that was shocking to me on Monday and seemed, you know, people said it was irresponsible and I could see the point that they were making. However, within a day, if I'm not mistaken, Biogen came out with its marketing plan and sort of self-limited. Like, like we said before, they were looking at the roughly 1 million patients they expect who would have early stage disease, as people did in that um, uh, in the clinical trials that led to this approval, but also would have amyloid in their brains as confirmed by scans. And so... It's kind of an interesting situation where the uh, the FDA is being maximalist in this case, but the drug company in question is actually curtailing um, the potential market size. So I, I guess you could argue that that it may work out in the way that people would have wanted the FDA to regulate in the first place, but it's definitely a strange situation. 
Hi there, I'm Pat Skerritt, host of the First Opinion Podcast, a cousin to Stats, the Read Out Loud Podcast. Each week, I talk to biotech experts, healthcare workers, and regular folks about the issues that are shaping science and medicine. I've hosted a debate between a physician and a philosopher about long COVID. Diane, I can hear you shaking your head here. I, I just want to suggest that you're saying opposing things. Trace the paths of infectious disease and war with a medical historian. They would take some of the pus and the scabs from people who had active cases of smallpox, put them in little envelopes and mail them to their fellow surgeons. So, so you actually sometimes find in Civil War letters, smallpox scabs. And if that happens, you should call the CDC. And come face to face with the systemic issues of sexism and racism that plague the country's healthcare system. We could go through hundreds of names and still not even tick off all of those who have been victims of state-sanctioned violence. Um, so why now? You can find the First Opinion podcast wherever you find the Read Out Loud. New episodes are released every Wednesday morning. Okay, let's move on to the broader implications of what this decision means for the industry and for patients. Who wants to start? <laughs> Let's go back to the price a second. And, you know, thinking about price plus the, you know, the millions of patients that may be using this drug. I mean, what do you think the implications are for Medicare and for private insurers? Well, I think you guys made such a great point. And you were the first ones I think I saw to make this comparison to Sovaldi. Um, Gilead's hepatitis C drug, which was priced at $84,000 for uh, the entire treatment, which broke down to $1,000 a pill, essentially. But that was a discrete treatment that was curative. Uh, and now we have a treatment that's $56,000 a year. And we don't know um, how long patients will be on this drug. And, you know, ostensibly the Alzheimer's market is 6 million patients in the United States, but Biogen is expecting it to be smaller than that. Regardless, this could be absolutely gigantic. And uh, analysts like Ronnie Gal at Bernstein, who I think is just he's he's kind of, he thinks about things differently than a lot of the other analysts, or at least presents things differently, where he's a little bit less afraid to um, call out the industry. I think, although Uma Rafat actually from Evercore ISI was pretty pretty bold in the first question on the Biogen. Yeah, call he was. This week. He kind of called um, Biogen out for the price. Yeah, he really did. Um, but Ronnie pointed out that. You know, 90% of Alzheimer's patients are covered by Medicare. And a lot of those patients, something I think he said 15 to 20%, have the kind of coverage where there's no out of pocket maximum. And so they could have a 20% out of pocket copay on the list price or the of the drug. Um, so that's, you know, something like $11,000 a year that these patients may have to pay. So we'll just have to see how that works. But he cautioned that the sticker shock from this price tag could lead to pushback from the U.S. government. Finally, that sort of straw that broke the camel's back to leading to a discussion about allowing Medicare to negotiate on drug prices. But I think Nicholas Florco did some really interesting um, reporting this week, too, from Stat about how this might not be the drug to do that because of all the uncertainties around it. Yeah, Damien, we, we did some numbers or, or just like some simple math. I mean, this could be a Medicare buster, couldn't it? Yeah, I mean, if you just multiply out you know, the list price times the patient population and, and look at the numbers, you get into the hundreds of billions. I think, you know, as Nick pointed out, you know, that's Biogen's not going to get to that revenue number. And furthermore, you know, the, the patient population is likely to be 
quite small. I think people who are modeling it expect a relatively small uptake. And then even Biogen in its sort of revenue projections, which were a little fuzzy, they seem to also agree that this is not going to be something taken by millions of patients, but more likely even at its peak in the hundreds of thousands seems to be kind of a consensus building around it. That being said, in Congress, you don't necessarily need you know, hard numbers to point to. The The narrative is pretty ugly as it stands. So I wouldn't be surprised if this does become a political issue in time. It just might be a little bit softer than, for example, you know, Savaldi, as an example, galvanized a lot of discussion about drug pricing. Now, granted, most of it came to nothing with respect to legislation. And that was a drug that was curing people, Meg, as you pointed out. And this is very, very different from that. And so I, I don't know, I, I am watching for it. But, but I agree in general that the response is likely to be more muted than maybe one would assume. So Meg, let me ask you a question. Um, the reaction to all of this, you know, this week uh, from the scientific community, for the most part, I mean, again, it's hard to sort of make broad generalizations, but it seemed like a lot of people were pretty angry and critical of this. And I wonder, do you think that that's going to matter beyond sort of the pouty tweets that we've seen all week? Hmm. No. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just pouty tweets and that's all it's going to be? <laughs> Well, I guess the question is matter in what way? And, and I think we don't often see this kind of outrage lead to anything. I mean, the, the, there's outrage over the price, yes. Um, there's there's outrage over the decision that the FDA made, which a lot of people said was driven by the patient need and not by science. And of course, we've seen this precedent be set um, with Sarepta and um, Eteplerson or Exondus 51, I guess it's called, um, where, oh gosh, we haven't even talked about the um, confirmatory <laughs> studies that Biogen is going to be required oh, right. to run. But you guys did some amazing reporting on this. Um, and the Adam, I'm just going to turn it over to you because like the Exondus thing, I just like it's your world. Like explain what Biogen has to do and then the precedent from from Sarepta. Well, yeah, I mean, for those uninitiated, you know, th there's precedent for what the FDA did here. Uh, controversial precedent in that you remember back in 2016, the FDA approved a drug for Duchenne muscular dystrophy based, again, on a biomarker. They sort of went out on a limb and uh, approve this drug called Exondus 51. It's from Sarepta, um, you know, based on a biomarker, based on essentially a protein biomarker. Um, what was sort of unknown at the time was whether, you know, increasing that protein in the in a patient would help that patient walk more, you know, improve muscle function. Um, that was a very controversial decision, just like this one was. And uh, Sarepta at that time was asked to conduct a confirmatory study. Um, this was back in 2016. The company didn't actually start that confirmatory study until 2019. So it took them three years to actually start the confirmatory study. And to this day, that confirmatory study is not known. So this drug is on the market. Sarepta makes a lot of money from it, but we still don't know whether it actually works. So all that Sarepta stuff kind of leads us to what Biogen has to do with its confirmatory study. Right, Damien? That's exactly right. And, and Meg, I'm going to do the weird thing where I throw to a clip of you recorded elsewhere. But um, on Monday, after the approval, you talked to Biogen CEO Michelle Venatsos, and, and one of the questions was about this confirmatory trial. And here's what he said. So if I'm not mistaken, we have more than nine years in order to deliver up to nine years in order to deliver the final results of the study that we will design together with the US FDA, for which the protocol is not yet, not yet over and, and finalized. 
And as importantly, before the nine years, and we are committed to deliver the data as soon as we can, obviously, we will be in a position to generate real-world evidence data that hopefully will substantiate the mechanism of action. Let me so separately, I'm just like the MC for your guys' relative <laughs> reporting. Adam, you later reported that that tone that Michelle used there, in addition to his words about the nine years, was irksome to people within the FDA who felt like they had an understanding that Biogen would begin this study more expediently than that. And so according to you know the letter of the approval, Biogen does indeed have until 2030 to turn in the results of this study. But I think, you know, just in the, you know, our this approval was hours old and it seemed like Biogen had already run afoul of the FDA who really gifted them this incredible and, and seemingly unlikely approval by kind of saying like, yeah, we got nine years. So, you know. Yeah, it was a bad look for Biogen. Um, although, again, you know, Michelle Venatis was completely in the right in, in saying that they had these nine years because that's what the letter said. And look, the FDA signed that letter. So it's not like it's not like Biogen just made this up. Right. Someone at the FDA said, oh, yeah, take take nine years. Um, but I think it was sort of more like. The sentiment of it and just like Biogen kind of going out there and sort of pushing that and like with you, I mean, literally it was hours after the approval and and Michelle is telling you, oh, yeah, we've got nine years. And that just I think that kind of that tone, you know, from based on our reporting and, and the people that we spoke to inside the FDA, that kind of that kind of pissed them off. I was also really surprised he he volunteered that information because my question <laughs> wasn't even how long do you have to provide the results? It was if the results don't bear out, do you support pulling the drug back off the market? Which, as I asked it, I was like. Of course, he's not going to say yes to this, but you kind of have to ask. Um, and then he volunteered the nine years, which surprised me. Um, I, I want to talk about the implications for other Alzheimer's companies and, and just sort of the industry more broadly in terms of what the FDA's flexibility here signals. But before we do that, Adam, you've written this very tantalizing thing in our outline here, and I want to hear what it means. The Revenge of Al Sandrock. Tell us about that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, uh, for people who don't know, Al Sandrock is kind of the head of R&D, the chief medical officer of Biogen. And, you know, throughout this process with Aduhelm, the ups and downs of aducanumab, the you know, the failed studies, the futility analysis, the reintroduction of the of the the drug to the FDA, you know, Al has been the guy who has kind of been the fervent, he's like the high priest of beta amyloid at Biogen, who has always believed in the drug, believed in this in this mechanism. And, you know, obviously a lot of people doubted him and they doubted the company. And so Al had an opportunity to kind of address all of that on Biogen's conference call on Tuesday morning. And and he, he he took the opportunity to kind of just sort of dig a little bit into his critics. And I'll just I'll just read the quote from Al from the opening statement that he made. He said, our team at Biogen has worked so hard for so many years and with the disappointments, criticism and even ridicule. We believed in each other and had faith that if we follow the science, always with the goal of what's doing best for patients, we would get there. I am very proud to be part of the Biogen team. So it was that even ridicule line that we all we all sort of we were all listening to the call and we were all on Slack at the same time and everyone's like, whoa, Al. <laughs> well, and that's what's funny to your point. It's from his opening statement. So this wasn't like an extemporaneous whatever. Like when he was drafting these remarks, he was like, and then I will stunt on the haters for one moment. <laughs> so I guess, you know, I guess he's if anyone, as you mentioned, he's been the face of this for more than a decade and uh, has been castigated time and again. So he he earned it, I suppose. Yeah, but hey, Al, you won, you know, so good for you. Just, you know, knowing knowing Al Sandrock, I, I don't know where that sentiment came from, but I do know just 
he he literally always talks about patients first. And, and yeah, a lot of companies do that. But Al, Al treated patients. I mean, he was a doctor um, before he joined Biogen. And, you know, I really do think he this is a very important you know thing to him beyond the business of having a drug that could bring in so much money. I mean, it's a really important moment for him. And he really genuinely believes this works and helps patients. So I think if I'd asked Al the question that I asked Michelle Vinatsis, do you support pulling this drug from the market if the confirmatory studies bear out? I think he, he would have said yes, because he believes that won't be a possibility. He he truly believes mm. this drug works. Well, we may yeah. know the answer to that question in nine years. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so let's just quickly, before we get to Greg, let's get just the implications for other Alzheimer's uh companies, other Alzheimer's drugs that, that Meg mentioned earlier. Damien, um, you know, Lilly comes to mind, right? Eli Lilly. What, what's going on with Eli Lilly? Right. So Eli Lilly is, is very much next in line in this sort of now amyloid parade toward likely approval. They have a drug called Denanumab, um, which had a really strong effect on amyloid in a phase two study we saw earlier this year, and they're currently enrolling a phase three study. So naturally, their stock went up. And there's a question, probably even in Indianapolis at Lilly, as to whether they could file for approval based on those phase two data, considering Biogen just wanted approval for lowering amyloid. So that, that remains to be seen. But then even beyond that, uh, other companies in the amyloid space, Prothena um, and um, AC Immune, which has an amyloid treatment that previously failed to show a cognitive benefit, but apparently that's okay, uh, conceivably at the FDA, their stock went up too. I mean, the, the read-through by and large is that the FDA is kind of open for business when it comes to these surrogate endpoints like lowering amyloid for uh, neurological diseases. So other Alzheimer's companies that have nothing to do with amyloid, their stocks went up. I think people are taking a hard look at some other um, rare neurological diseases where, you know, the FDA might signal might have just signaled that it's going to be more flexible, like for treat for diseases like ALS or perhaps Huntington's. It kind of feels like, and, and we may find out that this is false, but I think there's a there's a vibe out there that it's kind of a new day regulatorily when it comes to neurodegenerative disease at the FDA. Now that we've dug into the implications of the FDA's Biogen decision, we want to take a step back and look at how we got here. Back in the 1980s, as the AIDS crisis claimed thousands of lives, activists pressured a sluggish, conservative FDA to speed up the process for approving new drugs, leading to a sea change at the agency and setting the template for modern patient advocacy. Yale professor Greg Gonsalves was one of those activists with the influential group ACT UP. He was deeply disappointed with the FDA's approval of Adjuhelm this week, and the news led him to reflect on the legacy of ACT UP's work and what he called the devil's bargain of approving desperately needed treatments based on preliminary evidence. Greg joins us now to talk about it. Greg, thanks for coming on the podcast. Glad to be here. So, Greg, I wanted to start by asking you to, I mean, this is sort of a, a sin, but to unpack your tweet. I thought that was a really interesting phrasing as you were kind of reflecting on the deeply necessary work of the 1980s and how, in some ways, it kind of laid the breadcrumb trail for the news this week, which I know you, you deeply disagreed with. To roll back history um, to the 1980s, we were in a situation where many pa patients with Alzheimer's, Duchenne's muscular dystrophy are today. We do not have treatments that work for the disease. Um, and there was this assumption that, um, quote unquote, the FDA was killing us. And the idea was that, you know, there was uh, a, a curtain behind which FDA was, you know, stockpiling all these 
wonderful new medications for HIV. Um, and it was just about the speed of their approval, which was holding us back. Um, you know, within a year of doing this work in ACT UP, I think we realized the situation was, was not so simple. Um, and that, um, the pipeline was bare uh, in a real fundamental way in the context of HIV. Um, but we were desperate, right? And so we worked with a series of FDA commissioners, a series of CEDAR directors, and culminated in, in two very important pieces of policy. One was the parallel track, which said, you know, if you can't get into a phase three clinical study, there needs to be another way to get access to those experimental medicines. Nowadays, we don't do that very much. And I can, and I think it leads, leads us to the second piece of policy um, work that we did back then. We said we wanted surrogate marker approvals of drugs for serious and life-threatening conditions. And the FDA in, initiated the accelerated approval mechanism, um, which um, sped a bunch of different early antiretrovirals through the process. Um, but I was at those FDA um, advisory committee meetings. Um, we were, we were so deeply cynical by the early nineties, um, that we were basically pumping drugs out of the FDA for, for HIV, but we had no idea if they had any clinical benefit. Um, and as the era of the protease inhibitors approached, we were saying, you know what, slow down. We need some large, simple trials to get, uh, get a real clinical profile of these drugs. We can't go on with these sort of modest or, well, that's even being too kind. These, these sort of, tiny um, surrogate marker bumps in, in new AIDS drugs. Um, then we got lucky, right? The protease inhibitors turned out to be blockbusters. The surrogate marker effects were off the charts and also the clinical benefits were as well. It was apparent that these were sort of game changers. So a lot of us sort of um, left the stage, but other people were listening. And these are people from the sort of deregulatory right, the Goldwater Institute, the, the, the sort of, you know, the FDA should be a Yelp <laughs> um, for, for pharmaceuticals and biologics. And it became um, a way for them to, to, to go after sort of the regulatory state in the context of, of the FDA in a way that was much more appealing than, than sort of the sort of libertarian nonsense that they, they like to spout. They could use the term, the FDA is killing us, right? Um, and so um, most patient groups basically went hook, line, and sinker um, for what industry was telling them, that the FDA is killing you. We've got you over a barrel. We're going to push you to push the FDA to approve these new drugs and basically get us the, the best deal we could. Very little data, lots of high prices, uh, and not a lot of questions asked afterwards, right? Um, and so this kept going on and on and on throughout the, in the 1990s with legislative pro pro uh, proposals like FADAMA, then in the 2000s with the 21st Century Cures Act, all sort of death by a thousand cuts to the FDA's regulatory authority. And now we're in a situation where with the, the new Alzheimer's drug approval from Biogen, where this is sort of the catastrophe which you could have seen coming, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. But this is sort of, you know, the, the worst case scenario for a lot of us. How are the patients living or people living with Alzheimer's today different than than you and and other people who had HIV back in the 1990s. I mean, don't you know you you were arguing for you know rapid access to drugs and w with at a time when you didn't know necessarily whether they worked, but there was a hint that they would that they would help people with HIV. I mean, isn't that what people living with Alzheimer's today are asking for? So I think there's a, lots of similarities between where we were then and where Alzheimer's patients were today. We were in desperate situations, really with not many therapeutic choices or no therapeutic choices at all to save our lives. Um, and we were asked to make trade-offs. And initially we said, you know what, get the, 
get the drugs out the door. We'll figure it out later. Doctors can figure it out with their patients. We'll use real-world data to get the information. It turned out it wasn't true, right? It wasn't true. Um, you know, and, and, you know, we were so desperate at that point that we would take anything, right? I mean, if you remember those days, and some of you are too young to remember that, people like stirring up egg lipids in their bathrooms, right? This is crazy stuff. Um, and it does no good to, to peddle snake oil to people with HIV, to people with Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, to people with ALS, or people with Alzheimer's, right? Right? It, it starts to set the bar for, for, for more me-too, do-nothing drugs, right? And so do you feel like um, the society should have taken a lesson from what happened in the uh, pushing the FDA in the first, the earliest HIV drugs? The lesson should have been not that we can push the FDA to approve things early based on limited evidence or biomarkers or whatever, but the lesson should have been, okay, we pushed them so far, we got drugs that didn't work for us, uh, and this was something we should not do. I mean, I guess... A, that's my first question. And B, my, my second question is, I think some people make the argument that HIV is a precedent for uh, other disease areas where you start with drugs that aren't so good. And from there, you get this foundation and there is a signal from the FDA. They will approve drugs. So then there's investment from industry. There's focus on the area and you get better drugs over time. And so this is how the system should work. So a couple of things. Um, one is we got really lucky. Right, we got really lucky, and you all know the stats on new drugs and the the ratio of um, successful ones based on the ones that that go through the pipeline. We our luck should not be the basis for public policy, right? I mean, how many years have we gone through sort of uh, amyloid um, uh, based drugs in the context of Alzheimer's disease? It's a long time. There's lots of drugs that have risen and fallen on that. Um, the point is, is that there's an incentive built into the FDA's approval process, in which you have to put the data on the table before you get approval. Um, and the, and the, 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 the folly of accelerated approval, the way it's constructed, is that you know, nobody's going to take a drug off the market with accelerated, you know, once it's given accelerated approval. And the incentives are not even there to do the studies. I mean, now they're saying it's going to take nine years to do a confirmatory study for this drug. When they did the, the pivotal studies for, you know, quote unquote, pivotal studies in four to five years. And so we basically now disincentivized data generation. Um, and uh, it, it turns out it starts a race to the bottom. Like you don't have to sort of think of new ways of approaching Alzheimer's disease or ALS or um, or even think like maybe we should be focusing on the NIH and uh, basic science of, of, of Alzheimer's and neurodegenerative diseases. Um, it all puts this under these. We're just going to spiral through sort of um, uh, a series of drugs with marginal benefit, which have opportunity costs for us as a society, right? You know, $56,000 a year is a giant opportunity cost um, for for us, right? You know, my dad died of dementia. I don't, you know, it's hard to tell whether what it was, but he was at home for 10 years. And my mom just basically spooled through her, her savings um, to, to keep him safe and sound at home. You know, $56,000 a year um, could go a long way to keeping my 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 dad and other people's parents comfortable um, rather than sort of pouring it down the toilet to Biogen, um, which is basically just shoveling money into their pockets without little little data to show for it. It's a tidy sort of illustration of how we got to this point. But in your mind, you know, looking at policy, what could the FDA do or what would you want the FDA to do to sort of rein back this system that you just described? So a couple of things. One is the forces are incredibly strong working against us, right? You know, 
patient groups are largely hook, line, and sinker um, uh, uh, pro-industry, right? Because industry is telling them the only way you're going to get access to these drugs is if, if you push it through an exp expedited approval mechanism. Um, you know, the pharmaceutical lobby is, is the largest in the country. Um, you know, I was talking to a friend about the FDA commissioner's um, post, and they're like, you know, they really think this is theirs to pick, right? They, they, they have strong propriety over the agency. We're in, a, we're, in a, we're in a really bad policy moment and conundrum because the FDA approval process, as it was sort of initially conceived you know, after the Kefauver-Harris amendment was that you had to prove safety and efficacy to get your drugs on the market. Now we have to, now we have these sort of ideas that we can use um, surrogate markers that have a scintilla <laughs> of, of um, possibility that they might be linked to a clinical effect to put drugs on the market. And then it's like the check is in the mail about the confirmatory studies. Um, so we're in a situation where we, we've completely disincentivized um, clinical data generation. The only way I see ahead outside of sort of FDA regulatory reform is around um, uh, things like NICE and, and health technology assessment bodies, which basically say, you know what, we're going to look at the data, we're going to look at the price, and we're going we're to make reimbursement decisions as a country, not based on, on, on um what the market will bear, but what the evidence and, and the, the, the comparative effectiveness and the cost effectiveness of a drug might be. Um, you see this with ICER and certain um, nonprofits in the U.S. sort of taking on this role. But if we don't go down that road, um, we're really just going to see more and more drugs that are, that are for marginal benefit and are actually of exorbitant costs. You know, obviously you're not a fan of the pharmaceutical industry um, is that because of the pricing and the economics and the money they make, or is it because of the way they conduct the science? Because the way I look at it, or the way I think about it is, there are a lot of people who are alive because of the pharmaceutical companies who are developing these drugs. You know, people who had HIV who are alive today because of, um, because of antiretroviral therapies. Hey, I'm a total fan of the pharmaceutical company. You know, two hours ago, I took my antiretroviral drugs, which I've taken since 1996. So I'm not, I'm not anti-pharma. I'm not anti-biotech. I'm not anti-industry. Um, you know, it's it just saying because I want national health care, I'm a socialist. You know, so the, so the, the point is, is that you can be pro-industry. You can say we need a robust pharmaceutical industry, but there needs to be regulation, right? We have the highest drug prices in the world. We have a, 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 an FDA, which is getting close to regulatory capture. And so um, saying that we have to sort of rein in the industry is, is not the same as saying that, you know, you know, um, I, I see no benefit and social good in, in there being part of part of our lives. It's 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 not it's just simply not the case. The point is is that they have the largest lobby in the United States. They get to call the shots on drug pricing, on drug regulation, um, and at some point you have to say, where's the public good here? Well, Greg, I wonder, you know, given the reaction we've seen to this decision, which is. I think greater than we've seen in a long time. I mean, this erupted decision also with Duchenne muscular dystrophy was was big. Do you think this is a moment that actually will lead to real change, whether it be the consideration for Medicare to actually negotiate on drug prices, whether it be any other kind of change at FDA or elsewhere? So there's a couple of things going on. One is, as I said, they have the strongest lobby in the country, right? So change is going to be difficult to procure um, from our Congress vis-a-vis -vis all the other things we're trying to get through Congress at this point. We have no FDA commissioner right now. So my, I'm wondering, like, does the Biden administration really give a damn about, you know, U.S. drug regulation where, you know, you have Janet Woodcock sitting in there as, as acting for now. Um, so I would hope this was sort of the, the um, straw that breaks the camel's back and we can move ahead with a more rational um, balance between 
public good and private interest, but I'm not holding my breath. Um, I, I do think um, we have a lot more appetite for this uh, in the U.S. to pay a lot of money, pour money down the drain um, for drugs of marginal benefit because we've been doing it for the past, you know, 15, 20 years. And um, patients demand it. You know, even when drugs um, look like they may have marginal benefit even after confirmatory studies, people howl if you talk about taking it off the market. So we're between a rock and a hard place. I'm hoping this is the this is a, a turning point, but I, I, I'm not too hopeful about it. Greg, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, any anytime. Thanks for having me. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and what you think about the FDA's decision. You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.